0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, Son, and Spirit, we are a people gathered before you to hear from you, to be fed by you, to be grown by you, so as to live as worshipers of You. That's who we are. That's why we gather. That's why You have made us. And so I pray, Father, that You would carry out that purpose of Yours this morning to show Yourself to us and to mature us in You, to make us more like Your Son. That's our our great need this morning and every day. In all of the issues, and all of the aspects of life that we face, and, and they are many and varied. It all boils down to our need to be conformed to your image. We were made in your image. It has been twisted and marred, and you are remaking us like that. Thank you, and I pray for that this morning. Do more of it. I thank you for how you use all the circumstances in our lives conform us to you I thank you that you are near and gracious and kind thank you for your hand shown and seen in various ways with with the quarter family this week what as we've just thought about some of the ways you worked out appointments and and availability of different doctors I just say thank you for that we are a people who look to you for still more, and so we pray your hand would be on them and on Ben in particular, as he faces illness, that you would be on that family, near, present, kind, gracious, merciful, and strong. We pray that you'd bring healing, that you would bring wisdom in coming days with more doctors and more tests, and that you would be seen in all of it as good and wise and strong. Draw them, and through them, draw others to you. That's our need, Lord, that you would draw us to you and make us like your son. So please do that in life. Please do that with the text this morning. Illumine the issues that are in it. Father, would you commission your spirit to move through the room now and gather us together, grab our attention and fix it on you. Bring out of this passage what we need to see. Pray that you'd give clarity to my words, Lord. Give clarity to what I say, cause what is most important for each individual to rest in them. Spirit of God, take it and illumine your scriptures, that Christ our King would shine, that we would be changed by him. That's our hope, Lord, that you would grow us up, so make us a people pleasing to you for your honor and for our good. And I pray this in the name of Christ, the Savior and the King amen. We return this morning to the book of Judges in order to continue laying the groundwork for our upcoming study of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've looked at a, a couple of passages from Judges already and we'll look at a few more yet to come, all in the hopes of getting a full picture of the need for what Samuel addresses in Kings. In Samuel, the need for kings, a need for a king to rule over the people of God. Throughout Judges, as we saw, this is being set up for us by showing this several hundred year-long cycle, or perhaps descending spiral is a better way to describe it. Over and over and over again for centuries, the people of God turn away from God, turning to idols, provoking him then to jealousy and to anger and so he moves to discipline them and then they cry out to him for mercy and even though he knows it's not real he knows it's not genuine in their hearts he is a merciful God and he responds by raising up judges this kind of these cross of of a political and a military leader he raises up a judge and then through that judge acts to deliver them only then for them to turn away again and and the cycle continues and it gets down and down and down because it gets worse and worse and worse and worse That's the pattern throughout the whole book of Judges, and it is depicted very clearly in the last five chapters of Judges to which we now turn. Following the story of Samson, the last named judge, the last chapters kind of break with the pattern of telling the story of individual judges and give us a picture of the society as a whole. Now, there's some indication that what we see here overlapped the period of Samson as well as overlapped the period of the beginning of 1 Samuel. But the timing is not very specific. What is clear, though, is that there is continuing, accelerating decline of the society. There's a lot here. Look at these last five chapters. There's, there's a lot here that leaves the reader saying, what on earth? What on earth? Man. In fact, there's a lot of pretty graphic stuff in the last couple chapters here. And as we deal with it over the coming weeks, I'll, I'll attempt to be a little discreet. But if if you haven't read these chapters recently, read them. There's a lot there. Wow. And as you read it, you'll notice there is also a, a repeated phrase, something that God sticks in there in certain places so that as we the readers say, what on earth? He answers that exasperation on our part by pointing something out. Four times he says this slightly different ways. What on earth? Well, you know. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Wow, what on earth? Well, you know, in those days there wasn't a king. But what's God doing there? He's he's trying to point out to us they need a king. Boy do they need a king. They need a ruler to to stretch over this society some order some some structure of some righteousness and, and to point out to them what actually is right and therefore lead them into behaving rightly. They need a king. We need a king. But that's only part of the story because we don't need just a political human king. We need a greater king than that. This is pointing us towards the need for a king, pointing us towards the need for the kingly reign of God over us, his people. That's so where this is all going. And this morning we see it fleshed out in chapter 17 in the area of worship. We need a king to give right shape to our worship. Chapter 17 elaborates on that. Let me put it all in a sentence. This is where I'm going this morning, my main point. God intends to prosper His people by bringing our worshiping hearts under the reign of His King. God intends to prosper His people by bringing us, by bringing our hearts, our worship beneath His rule, beneath the reign of this King. That's how He wants to prosper us. And he does want to prosper us. That's what we're going to work towards this morning. Let me read the passage, all of Judges chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Chapter 17. This chapter begins with a man named Micah who wants to be prospered, so he robs his mom of 1,100 pieces of silver. And as he hears his mother talk about it, upset, obviously, begins to feel kind of bad about that. And so he confesses to it and returns the money and then in verse 2 and again in verse 3, notice, notice a word there. The word Lord shows up. Probably in all capital letters in your English Bible because it's, it's the name Yahweh. This is the Lord God, the one true God. And the point is that these folks doing this stuff see themselves as still in relationship with God, the true God. Not some other false god. It's, it's the Lord that they are looking towards. She is thankful he has confessed, and shows, so she asks the Lord to bless her son, and then perhaps to help incline the Lord to bless him. She dedicates the silver to the Lord, middle of verse 3, to make a carved image and a metal image. Two images. Image, image. And verse 4, it's repeated it again in case we missed it. Image, image. What did they make in dedication to the Lord? Images. Never mind the second commandment. Idolatry right there, and it was in the house of Micah. That's where he set up his shrine. With the idols and some other household gods. God's. And he made an ephod. We talked about that before when we looked at Gideon in chapter 8, but to be a little more brief than than I was then. An ephod is essentially priestly wear, kind of like a, a shirt, torso garment. And priests in the tribe of Levi were to wear linen ephods to show that they were priests. But then there was one particular ephod made out of precious metals and stones, and the high priest would wear that at the sanctuary And he would carry on his shoulders the names of the tribes of Israel into the presence of God. And so what the ephod was was a connecting point. When worn on the shoulders of the priest, it's the place where God and people meet. So it's a place of connecting people to God when worn by a Levite at the sanctuary, which is in Shiloh. But Micah makes himself an ephod, and he gets himself a priest. Not not a Levite, he just doesn't have one of them, so he'll get one from his own family, his own son, who becomes his priest. And Micah sets up his own way to worship the Lord with his own images, his own little household idols, with his own ephod worn by his own son who is his own priest. What on earth? None of this is anywhere close to to what God said about how he is supposed to be worshipped. And Micah knows it. Because he, he knows that a Levite's an upgrade. He, he knows what he's supposed to be doing, what it's supposed to be. Am I in a concert or something? <laughs> he, he knows it. But, you know, lacking a Levite, he'll do what he can do and make his own deal. And we just look at that and say, wow. And then God says, well, you know, in those days there was no king. And so everybody did just whatever they wanted, whatever seemed right to them. However they thought they could approach God and worship him, whatever fit their their personal agenda and the resources they had at hand, that's what they did. So we know what Micah has deemed right in his eyes and what he has done, but we don't yet quite know why until the next paragraph and a few more details come up as a random Levite wanders by. This guy is kind of looking to advance his career. The next chapter reveals that a little more clearly when he takes a promotion to become a Levite for the tribe of Dan. But he's wandering around to find a place where maybe he could, he could get a job, and Micah offers him a, a contract, and he accepts it, and he hires him. And then we're left with the last line, left here for emphasis, yes, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because now I have a Levite as a priest. I have arrived, and I know the Lord will prosper me. That's the text. I'm going to unpack unpack that by making two observations, and here's the first one which might sound a little odd, being that verse 13 is supposed to leave us shaking our heads also. But I'm going to pick up that word prospering. Here's my first point. God does intend to prosper us. He does. God does intend to prosper us, but perhaps not in the way we think. God does intend to prosper us, but perhaps not in the way we think. Prospering is Micah's goal. shows up in the beginning with his robbery. shows up even in how his mother prays from him. His mother prays, you know, Lord, don't curse my son for his covenant breaking. I mean, he, he broke the, the fifth commandment, honor your mother. The eighth commandment, don't steal. The tenth commandment, don't covet. Don't curse him for all that, Lord, but instead bless him because at least he gave it back. It shows up there that the goal is, is blessing prosperity, but especially the last sentence, now I know the Lord will prosper me. That's what he's after. And maybe he doesn't just mean monetarily prosper. Because we think about prospering through, throughout the Bible, and if you think about prospering just kind of across all of the, the layers of life, it doesn't just always involve money. Sometimes prospering can involve security or, or health protection from enemies, healing of diseases. Sometimes it can be maybe a, a mental prospering, a physical or a, a psychological prospering of rest or peace or hope. Cattle that, that uh, are productive, crops that are productive, so you get some relief from hard and fruitless work. All of that could be prospering. So it's not clear that he just wants money. He probably wants the good life. which we shouldn't completely denigrate. If you stop for a second, I, so I, I don't want to hammer against that. I, I want to push against that too much because there's something in us that wants that good life because that's how God made us. And that's how God made the garden, and that's how God will make the new heaven and the new earth. And God does salt throughout our lives this kind of very circumstantial, very material, very earthly blessing. He wouldn't give it if it was wrong in itself. So I don't want to say that everything about this is completely, totally wrong. The problem comes up when it gets out of order the desire for some of these things in itself is not wrong the problem is an order mistake an ordering it gets so easily twisted god and let's just say stuff i mean which i mean very broadly very easily in our lives gets disordered, and God then becomes the means to give us all of this. He becomes the support, the provider, the great giver of the stuff I really want, of the things I'm really living for, of what I think would really prosper me. We can live just like Mike, That's what Michael's after. Micah is not after proper worship of the Lord. He's after what the Lord can give him. And at the end, he feels very happy that now he has secured it. We can live just like that. We can. I don't want to say we always do, but we can live just like that with our primary concern for our circumstances. And I lean on primary because, again, I'm working with an order thing, a priority thing. When we live primarily concerned for what will help me feel good, for what will enrich me, protect me, fit my perspective on what should be, satisfy my sense of personal justice, give me the type of peace and rest and amusement to the degree and the timing that I want. We've broken the order of creation. And we are in danger at that very moment. We are right on the doorstep of turning God into our servant rather than serving Him. Of turning God into the one who worships us rather than the other way around. It it is natural to do this. It's easy to see why. Because so much of... The things in this life, that they press in on us. Not only is, it, is there something in our creation about that, and there's something calling out to us from what was and what will be, but, but there's a whole bunch of trouble that we face. Is there not? Is it not very compelling and sometimes, sometimes desperately compelling when what comes at us is, is an accident or a disease or some sort of a threat? It is very compelling to say, God help. Deal with this. My greatest concern is this right now. And God wants to help. He wants to. Which is why this is so slippery. He wants to address those things. He he does not say, I have no concern for the physical world. He does. He made us physical people in a physical world and He knows our needs But he also expects us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and the other things will be added. Order. Hear the order? It's a subtle line. It is is hard to look at yourself, and and I'm asking you now to look at yourself and say, where, when, how do I cross the line and mess up the order? Perhaps an indication... Perhaps an indication might be, I've crossed the line and I am seeking the prospering in these circumstances as my primary goal. Perhaps the indication is how you deal with God after He prospers you in those ways. Do you leave Him, say thank you, and carry on, not coming back until you need Him again? Or, how do you deal with God if He doesn't prosper you in those ways? Are you frustrated and angry and leaving Him? Going to find the prospering somewhere else. Maybe that can indicate to you, maybe that's a sign. But it is it is wrong. Brothers and sisters. It is, it is wrong. When we turn God, who should be our primary concern, our greatest focus, we turn God into the servant of the things we're really after. We seek the giver only to get the gifts. That's wrong, but that's not the greatest problem here. The greatest problem... Maybe I'll use the word tragedy. The greatest tragedy... Follow this closely because this is is fine here. I'm going to try to be clear, but this is fine. The greatest wrong is a slightly different two-edged problem. The wrong done to God as we deny Him... The opportunity to be our riches. It's one edge, what we deny God, the opportunity to be our riches, and secondly, therefore, we end up broke. The greater tragedy, other than greater than we turn God into, into a servant, the greater tragedy is that we deny him the chance to be that which is prosperous. And we end up not prospered. There is a great prospering that could be ours. That He means for us to have. And it is lost to us. When we ask God to give us just stuff in the world, thank you very much, that's all I want. What is the great prospering? Do you know Psalm 4? Particularly verses 6 and 7. Jot them down. Look at it later. Psalm 4, verses 6 and 7. There are many who say, Show us some good. Plenty of people say that. And the psalmist says then to God, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Shine your face on me, O Lord. And then he says, this is verse 7 of Psalm 4, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. they have all of the stuff one could want and I have more joy because your face is shining on me. Show us some good, say many people. And the psalmist says, yes, I agree with that. Show me some good. Cause your face to shine on me. That is more joy than all the abundance of this earth. The great prospering for which He made you, that which you need, that which would be more joy to you than everything else is to have the face of this good and gracious God shining on you to commune with Him. Do you know Psalm 4? Not just in your head. Have you experienced it? More joy. Sure, the joy of this stuff. Okay, more joy. I want more Shine your face on me, O Lord. That's what's missing when we turn God into just the one who gives us the grain and the wine. More joy is lost, and I end up impoverished. In the Garden of Eden, there was no need for money There was no sickness to be healed. There was no danger to be protected from. There was no painful labor from which we would seek rest and entertainment. And there, Adam and Eve lived in intimate fellowship with the one who was their joy. And they walked with him. They talked with him. They lived with him face to face. And then sin wrecked it all. And we fell and we became enemies of God. But what did God do? God intervened so as to fix that. God sent God the Son to earth to go to the cross to remove the barrier that stood not between you and more grain and wine, or health and money and job, to remove the barrier that's between you and Him. To take us back to that moment when God and His people lived face to face, communed face to face, and He poured out the blessing of Himself so that they had more joy. God did that. Do you understand what that means? Now, I know you understand. Most of you understand the message of the cross. But what it means is that He has made a way for you to go home. Back to that. It's what He's working to give you even today. And one day in fullness... Forever and ever and ever. We have to understand what really prospers us. The, the, next, the next piece I'm going to talk about explains some of how we get there. But we have to understand what really prospers us. And you have to understand that God Himself is after that for you. He is not against your good. He is not against your joy. He is not against your prospering. He is for it more than you are. Which is why He says, Come to Me. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I give you rest. Come and be prospered. He wants to, but maybe not in the way that we often think. He wants to prosper by giving himself to you, communion with himself. How does he do that? How does that happen? Well, that's the second observation. So here's the second point. Only God's king can enable us to draw near to God properly for our prospering. Only God's King can enable us to draw near to Him for our prospering. That's the implication of verse 6, which is right in the middle of the passage. It's kind of put there in the middle to emphasize it. And it follows right on the heels of of verses 4 and 5, where Micah has those silver images and the idols and Sets him up in his own house and his shrine with his ephod and his household gods and his self ordained priestly son. Clearly, idolatry is a problem here. Mike has got that problem, but notice, as we've already mentioned, he hasn't adopted an idolatrous worship style to the exclusion of the Lord. He he thinks it is the worship of the Lord. Which is an important point for us to to think about and to understand. In a very real way, Micah is thinking inside and maybe speaking out loud I am worshiping you, Lord. I am doing something that you favor and therefore will look upon me in favor. That's what he's thinking. That's what he's maybe even saying. But the Lord is saying, no, you are not. How can that be? This is important because what what it means is that a person, yea, even us, can sit in church and with our mouths and even in our hearts be thinking, I am worshiping the Lord. I am in some way walking in a way that pleases Him and would incline Him to favor me and God may say, no you're not. How can that be? Well, let's think about it. This is idolatrous in the In the sense that like all idolatry what Micah is doing is starting with himself and determining from the beginning what he finds right in his own eyes, what he finds permissible, acceptable, doable in his own eyes and then deciding for God that that will be good enough. That that will be acceptable. He's putting it on to God. It's where all idolatry starts with me. What I deem right and appropriate. That's what Mike is doing here. This is of great importance to us because we still do this. Let me explain how. God has told us how it is That we draw near to Him and how it is we are pleasing to Him. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So from the very beginning, the only way that anybody on earth, anybody born on earth... Draws near to God in a way that is pleasing to him is through Jesus and specifically through faith in Jesus' cross any any other claim that I am worshiping the Lord the, the God of the Bible that I am worshiping him in some other way in any other way that is not completely and totally a trusting in Jesus' cross is, in fact, not coming to the Lord and not worship of him. I just need to clarify that. Most of us understand that. That's where it starts for us, key word, faith in Christ. But Christian, every day now, every day now, same thing for us. How today do we draw near to God in a way that pleases Him? Faith in Christ. Same. So that happened once, once, and then every day afterwards. Faith in Christ. Now, you could put on some, some other Bible descriptions with Taking up our cross and following Him, laying down our lives, living as servants of His. Like you put all those on there, but but here's what I'm trying to get across: is that we come to God with this posture. We come to God first, and then every day afterwards, like this. Lo, with empty hands, with nothing to contribute nothing to bring, with no no list of merit to pull out of our pocket. Here's why I should be pleasing to you. We come low, beneath, submitted, humble, to receive. Faith. Faith. It is impossible to please God apart from faith. Hebrews tells us that. But watch what we do. And here's, here's again where I just have to ask you to look at your life and, and look for it there. I see it in my life. Here's what we do. We find that path of the low and empty and humble, open hand, receiving everything, having nothing. We find that a little bit vulnerable and a, a little bit... Um, Well, humbling. So, we turn it. And we grab a hold of stuff that we can do. We try to set up another path that seems right and acceptable to us. Something that we often do. We try to come to God by, let's say, by giving, by serving. We try to come to God and make ourselves acceptable in His sight by the regularity of our Bible reading and prayer time. Now, I say that very carefully because are we supposed to read our Bibles? Are we supposed to pray? Are we supposed to give? Are we supposed to serve? Absolutely. But do you realize that you can read your Bible every day, memorize massive chunks of it, and just like a Pharisee hear from Jesus, your heart is far from me. In itself, those things do not merit any standing with God. What pleases Him? Faith. A coming to Him that is a laid down, humble dependence. Oh God, I need You. I need you for absolutely everything. I'm dependent on you in absolutely every way. A faith that comes surrendered and empty-handed is, is the posture that we must have in approaching God. And the glory of it is that when you come like that to God, how does He respond? He fills you and prospers you with more joy than they have with all of their wine and new grain abounds. Faith is the attitude that pleases God. Faith in Christ pleases God because it is the posture that says, give whatever you give, I receive. So, I want to be clear, I want to be very clear that I am not denigrating, I'm not uh, attempting to speak negatively and diminish the the role of reading your Bible. Absolutely read your Bible. Read your Bible every day, memorize huge chunks of it. And I'm not saying we should not pray, and I'm not saying we should not give, and that we shouldn't serve. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is that look at your heart very carefully, And observe, I think you'll find there, a tendency to replace those behaviors and those actions, to put those behaviors and those actions in the place where humble, surrendered, laid down life belongs. Because the actions and the behaviors are easier. I can read my Bible and be just as arrogant and stubborn as I want to be. And if I've decided that reading my ten chapters of the Bible today is what pleases God, I can read my ten chapters of the Bible in my arrogance and in my stubbornness and think I'm fine. Your heart is far from me. It is impossible to please God without faith. We come to Him we must come to Him in the way that He tells us to come to Him and not try to cobble together some combination of some things. Well, I know there's an ephod and I know there's a Levite and I know we're supposed to worship Him. and So I'll put all that together in my own way, at my own place, in a way that works for me. No. Come to Him how God says, which means give up, lay it down, surrender and you will find your hands felled glorious. That's, that's the call to us. But we are so like, like this guy, Micah. I mean, not exactly. We wouldn't do any of those things. We wouldn't make silver images, I don't think. But we're just like him because it's natural. We need something to affect this and change this we need a king or we're going to continue to do what seems right in our own eyes just the same. And the kingship of Jesus affects His subjects in this way. As the kingship or the reign of Jesus spreads over your life, his spirit living in you works, 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 works to change you, to persuade you, to incline you to trust. How does he do that? Well, particularly by showing you, and I mean not just physically showing you a picture of, I mean, I mean illumining for you, often in conjunction with the pages of the Bible sometimes in conversation with a friend over a cup of coffee, but by showing you a cross stained with blood for you, a tomb empty, a whole a, a book full of promised blessings for you, the riches of Christ. Particularly, the Spirit of God woos you to believe by showing you truth and saying, for you, for you, for you, for your good, and by showing you error and saying, danger. It's a lifelong process. But this is the reign. This, this is the king's work. He works on the inside, not just by decree from the outside, thou shalt. Or shall not. But he works on the inside and inclines us to see and to believe and to trust. But you have to take a step. You gotta make a decision to trust him. So where all this ends, I suppose, is by me kind of putting this in your lap and saying, faith pleases him faith is what brings you to him is what binds you to this one who will prosper you will you trust him yes or no maybe for some that's that's a, a first time will you trust him but for most of us, that's a will you trust Him today? Will you trust Him with fill in the thing? Will you trust Him with your work situation, with your health situation, where, where you're tempted to turn God into a provider of something else? Where, wherever that is, whatever that is, right there, will you trust Him? Yes or no? I plead with you. And I ask the Spirit to plead with you and to show you the great, great, abundant blessing that will be yours if you trust Him because your hands will be filled with Him. More joy. More joy. Trust Him. He pleads with you. Now, as we move towards communion, he pleads with you over the cup and over the bread, saying, remember what this is, what I've done for you. Trust me. So as we move towards that, let me pray. I'm going to pray that he will move on you to adopt that posture of faith before him. Let me pray. Lord, we have a need in us. That is a rabbit hole that goes deeper than we realize. We have a need in us for you to change our hearts and incline them towards you. I am so thankful that there is a promise of great reward held out to me, your son, to us, your people. A promise that we can have a taste generated in our mouths and and a change worked in our hearts that we we would find you to be what we were made for. You can do that, and I'm thankful for that promise, and I ask you to carry it out. to work on individual men and women and boys and girls here right now, to work on them and to show them Your goodness, to draw them to You and to incline them in that to lay aside everything that they're holding on to, everything that they're inclined to take charge of and not let go of and be their own boss in. Grow in us as a people and as individuals. Humble faith, I pray, Father. make us a people pleasing to you, that is, a people who trust you. We look to you for that. We have not the power in our own hands. Please grant that which you require for our great joy. And you would be honored in it as... We ourselves and others around us saw you to be our joy. You would be honored in that, Lord. So I I pray for the sake of your name and for the sake of the people whom you love, grant that, please. Tear us away. Tear us away from our inclination to hold on to it and be in charge, to come to you as we please, when we please. Tear that away from us, Lord, please. Our need is for You. Thank You for hearing us, for loving us, for not abandoning us, for never leaving us, Your people, as orphans, but for committing Yourself to us, for living in us, and for owning us all the way to the end. Bless Your holy name. Amen.